I begin today by telling you about a plan, a bold new plan. Okay, it's just some new artwork and graphics, but I'm really excited about it. Then we get to answering the question, don't buy a Bible. Okay, all right, that's a good point. This just in, evidently it isn't a question. So today, it's all on the way to discussing the admonition, don't buy a Bible. Yeah, you were right. It isn't a question, and it's not nearly as catchy, okay? You were right. Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. As I think I mentioned in last week's podcast, I'm now posting every new episode, both as a regular audio podcast, but also as a video on YouTube. And this has offered some new challenges and opportunities. First, I had initially thought that I would just record the video version and then pull the audio from that for the podcast. And I was halfway through recording the first of these videos when I realized a fatal flaw in my plan. It wasn't going to be any fun and actually quite frustrating for the people listening in, say, their cars or their daily run to hear me say things like, and here's a picture of what it looks like. The audio version of this podcast needs to use verbal descriptions to create pictures so people can understand what I'm describing. And the video version can, well, it can just show the picture. The other challenge is that I need branding that is consistent across platforms, and I've been receiving some feedback recently that some of my branding is, well, a little stodgy. It needs to be more distinctive, more simple, more recognizable, and more fun. Some of the feedback has said, well, that's what the podcast already is. Let the branding reflect the reality of it. I thought that was nice. So I've been working on exactly that, and you will see a change in branding coming very soon. For most people, that just means that the cover art used in the podcast is going to change. But if you watch the videos on YouTube, you will also see the opening and closing sequences both reflect some of these changes as well. Now, when I started this podcast a number of years ago, 180 episodes ago, I wanted to select a title and theme that evoked the image of going on an exciting, fun, and entertaining journey. For me, during my youth, the most exciting, fun, and entertaining stories about journey came from Star Trek, the original television series. So because of that, in terms of branding, there's a connection with space exploration. My closing charge, if you've hung around that long, my closing charge at the end of every podcast urges you to boldly go wherever the quest takes you. The boldly go was lifted, I hope pretty obviously, from the opening of Star Trek. The name of the podcast uses the word quest, which is both fitting, I think, but also another tip of the hat. This one to a movie that spoofed Star Trek called Galaxy Quest. Star Trek was well, was an adventure, exploration, and the first series was also groundbreaking television in a number of important ways. It was multicultural, it starred a multiracial cast, it featured the first interracial kiss ever on television. It had a decidedly anti-colonial attitude when it came to space exploration and interacting with other cultures. Tolerance and peace and understanding were always the objectives when they were exploring. 
which those are the objectives of this podcast as well. So I liked the synergy there. The nod to the comedy satire Galaxy Quest is also a reminder that we're on an adventure, but it should be fun and incorporate some humor. So, in the new branding, you will see a bright, colorful logo with a spaceship blasting off for parts unknown, heading out on a grand adventure. The new color scheme is supposed to offer the sense of fun, excitement, and be more easily recognizable when it's being displayed on really small phone screens. Oh, and it's intended to catch the eye of a little bit younger listener as well. Purple, green, blue being the main colors. But, okay, enough about that. Consider yourself duly informed. We return you now to your regularly scheduled program. I should probably, at this point, remind you of the question, it's been a while, or the admonition as it turns out to be. I began by saying, don't buy a Bible. Okay, now this title is admittedly clickbait, and clickbait, by the way, if it's something you don't know, is a title that's intended to get people to click on a video or a post, but often doesn't really deliver on what the title promises. Now, this isn't something new. Local television news channels have been doing this for years. They will run a promo for a news story that sounds really interesting and exciting and informative, and then follow up with an announcer telling you, you need to stay tuned. Actually, you need to just stay on the channel until 11 to catch this segment. And if you do, you often find that they don't deliver on the answers they promise. They simply restate the question, leaving you wondering, why did I stay up for this? So first... Is the title of this video clickbait? Well, in the sense that I very much picked the title that I thought would garner attention and get people to listen to this or watch, you bet. But, but, before you tune out, am I going to actually tell you not to buy a Bible? Well, yeah, I am. With a caveat, but yes, I am. First, let me tell you about the problem with the Bible. And I'm really sincere here. This is genuine. The problem with the Bible is, it wasn't meant for you. No, really. Think about how it was created. Much of the Bible was written down at a time in which no one had access to books or owned books. Well, matter of fact, books didn't even exist. Okay, I see a hand go up in the back immediately like Horse Shack from Welcome Back, Mr. Cotter. Yes, I am aware that the first books, meaning bound books in similar form to the way we know with pages, were actually created a hundred years before the birth of Jesus. Yes, that is true. But remember the books of the Old Testament were being written down long before that. Genesis being written maybe as many as 1,300 years before that. The Bible was first written on scrolls, and those scrolls were not ever intended for mass publication. The Gospels were written sometime after the death of Jesus, obviously, and there was no expectation that every follower of Christ would get a copy. They would be read in local worship gatherings in people's homes. Matter of fact, Paul's letters that are found in the New Testament, those were exclusively written to and sent to the church for which they were intended, and certainly not initially intended to be replicated for everyone to read. When we read the epistles from Paul, we're not reading advice to Christians everywhere. We are eavesdropping on a conversation between Paul and a particular worshiping community somewhere. So when the books of the Bible were created, none of them were created with the idea that all believers would eventually get to own a copy of them. 
If the sections of the Bible that we call books were to be encountered by early Christians, it was going to happen not through their owning a copy of it and having it at home, but it was going to happen within the context of community worship. Matter of fact, when I was in seminary, I had a classmate who came from a country where owning a Bible was illegal and being Christian was strongly discouraged. He had to lie to his government about where he was going and what he was going to be doing in order to come to the United States and attend seminary. Now, I'm not going to tell you who he is or the country he came from for his production. I happened to have him in my very first preaching class, and when he preached his first sermon, it was long. It was really long. I mean, it was really, really long, and by our standards, kind of tedious. It was a Bible study in which he went almost word by word by word through a really big piece of Scripture and very carefully explained every single detail. I mean, I mean, everything. It was, well, if you can't tell by the way I've described it so far, it was too much. And so we gently told him so. That's what the class did. Someone would preach, and then everyone would reflect to them how they experienced the sermon. So this wasn't something he was receiving that no one else was. We reminded him that people today don't have the ability or the desire to sit through that kind of sermon. And then he very gently, but pretty firmly, still gently but firmly, reminded us that the people in his church they don't get to own Bibles. They couldn't own Bibles. So if he did anything less than this when he preached, they would be really upset and demand he give them more. They had risked so much to be there. They wanted to squeeze every drop of learning they could from the Scripture for the day because it was the only possible interaction they would have with the Bible until next week when they gathered again. Now, I tell you that story because it's a pretty accurate glimpse into what life was like for Christians in the very early church. Also, remember that in the early church, there was no Bible yet. There were only separate writings that had not been compiled into a single book. The Bible as we know it was not formally agreed upon until three successive councils that took place in fairly rapid succession, rapid succession by the way the church does things, around the year 400. Now, the first printing of the Bible, well, that was even remotely created for public consumption was the Gutenberg Bible, and that was printed in 1455. Now, before we take that as the date that the Bible came to be in the hands of regular people, I have a few numbers to put that in perspective. At the time of the printing of the Gutenberg Bible, it is estimated that the total number of books in print in Europe was 30,000. That's not 30,000 per year. That is the number of books in total, in print, in existence, period, was 30,000. Oh, and the run of Gutenberg Bibles was shockingly small. I think it was 180. So there was no expectation that the blacksmith had one of these sitting on his coffee table. And that's not even because there was no expectation that he was going to have a coffee table. These were exclusively being bought by people who had significant resources, probably churches. And I mean, not a little local church, big churches and select people of wealth. A Gutenberg Bible cost in the day that it was initially created what a blacksmith might have made in a really good year. 
and a third of what a rock cottage would cost for him to have built for him as his family home. So why, you might ask, am I overly emphasizing that the Bible wasn't created nor intended from the beginning to be a book that was in the hands of just anyone who wanted one? Is the point that it is somehow against the intent of the founding authors that we all have one? No, I don't think that would be accurate, nor is that the point that I'm trying to make right here. My point has nothing to do with right or wrong, but the usability of the Bible. If the people who put together the very early Bibles, not in print yet, but just when they were deciding what books would go where and how they would be presented in a single collection that we call the Bible, if they had known that this would be available to regular people, I would think they would have organized it in a far more useful way than they did. Look, let's start with the Old Testament. The number of people who go and buy their first Bible with the intent of reading it through is a pretty large number. So they read it as you read any book, right? They start at the beginning and they will finish at the end because that's what you do when you buy a book. Except the Bible isn't a book. It's a library printed in book form. The name Bible literally means plural, books. Or better yet, a good translation of the word Bible would be just library. So someone who has never read the Bible and is curious about what it contains goes and buys one. Then starts to read it, first with Genesis, then Exodus, and those aren't too bad. So they keep reading. Next they come to Leviticus, and that one's, well, that one's hard. Matter of fact, I ran across someone who had ranked, this was a scholar, who'd ranked all the books in the Bible in order of difficulty to read. And amongst the five most difficult books in the Bible, the five most difficult, fifth hardest was Numbers, fourth hardest was Isaiah, third hardest was Leviticus, second hardest was Jeremiah, and finally, the number one hardest to read book is Ezekiel. Now, here's my point. All of those are in the Old Testament, and two of them, Numbers and Leviticus, are going to come up as soon as the third and fourth book of the Bible when you're trying to read your way through the complete Bible in order. So the truth is, the Bible's not designed to be particularly accessible as it is organized. Let's say you aren't new. You know the Bible fairly well. I mean, you haven't memorized it, but you've attended church and you know the stories really well. And you're supposed to lead the Bible study you've just joined, and you have been assigned the story of the prodigal son. You're astute enough to know that the story will be in one of the Gospels, and even that the Gospels are in the New Testament. Maybe you even recall that this particular story is in the book of Luke. Fairly easy, you think to yourself. You'll just scan through the Gospel of Luke looking for the word prodigal, except you may discover very quickly prodigal isn't found anywhere in the story of the prodigal son. When I was first ordained in my ministry, I used to beg people not to buy a Bible that lacked a concordance. Now, if you don't know that word, a concordance is simply like an index, offering an alphabetical listing of words and phrases from the text. But a concordance is more because it often includes topics and associated words with the book. So the word prodigal would not show up in an index because it's not actually in the book, but a concordance would have the word prodigal because it is associated with that story. 
and you can buy Bibles with pretty good concordances in the back. So my point to people was that for the vast majority of us, buying a Bible without a concordance was like buying a Bible that would only frustrate and eventually be relegated to the bookshelf. A concordance was the key available to regular people to unlock the Bible in some pretty wonderful ways. Look, you don't need to own a print Bible. If you want one, by all means, buy one, but you don't need one. We actually live right now, and this is my major point, in the golden age of Bible study. Because you have something so much better than even a concordance. You have the internet. Look, if you decide you want to find the prodigal son, open up your computer, open up your browser, and just Google it. You search for prodigal son. The very first thing in your search results will tell you where to find it, what passage contains the prodigal son story in Luke. You'll be amazed how easily it helps you find the exact passage you're looking for, whatever it is. Okay, Dan, you said don't buy a Bible, and now you have us looking for a passage in a book that we're not supposed to own. Okay, the first point of this episode is not that you shouldn't own one, but that you don't need one. Look, when I was in seminary, I spent a fair amount of money on Bible reference books so that when I left seminary and was writing sermons or working on classes, but no longer had access to the seminary library, I could do research on my own. And I owned, as I think almost all priests do, thousands of dollars in reference books, all to help me do exactly this. Eventually, I moved to a large church in Atlanta, and when I arrived, they bought me a computer program that could do most of this without going to my bookshelf. But by the time I retired, well, I never opened that program anymore. Never, ever, because there were websites that could get me the same information I needed before my computer had even managed to open the Bible software program. You can do almost everything you want to do from within Google. You can even look up Bible passages, read them all from your Google search. Okay, but what if you want to go a little deeper? What if you want more resources pulled together at the same place? What if you don't want to have to do kind of multiple searches to find what you want? Then I recommend a site called Bible Gateway. Again, just Google the words Bible Gateway or type BibleGateway.com into your browser. This site is very similar to the software I used to have on my computer and allows you to search and also choose from many, many. Okay almost too many translations. Again, I used to have probably on my bookshelf 10 different printed Bibles. Each was a different translation so that I could, if I wanted to, pull out the way various translations had rendered some original text and see if there was some nuanced difference between them. Now, this website can let you look up a passage and then see it in different translation with the ease of a drop-down menu as you flip from one translation to the other. Now, as a quick aside, I do the vast majority of my reading in just two translations right now, the NRSV and the NIV. I have episodes that I talk about that kind of thing, so I'm not going to go into that. But you don't really need to wander through all several hundred translations that are available out there. Okay, finally, some may say, but I don't want to read the Bible on the Internet. I want a book. I want paper in my hands. But but I still don't want to struggle. Isn't there some way to read the Bible with some sort of helpful training wheels? 
Yes. Yeah, there are two that I recommend. First, perhaps you actually want to own the whole Bible, the book, the traditional Bible, just in a more usable form. Then I strongly recommend getting yourself a study Bible. I suggest something like the HarperCollins Study Bible with with a concordance and the apocryphal deuterocanonical books. Now, those apocryphal books are a small section of books that Catholics include, some Protestants don't, and other Protestants, like Episcopalians, include but separate them into their own section. Even if you're from a tradition that doesn't read these books, they're worth having for reference purposes. Okay, finally, the second of the two recommendations for those who... They do want a book, but they don't need the whole Bible, but would like some sort of structured reading plan. There is a series that I really like, written by a man named William Barclay. He has written commentaries for the books of the New Testament. And here's what I like. He takes bite-sized chunk of scripture, translates it, and then comments on it. Almost every single entry is easily something you could comfortably read in 10 minutes, and it doesn't get overly academic. Very often, he is giving you the background that you might not know about what's happening in the passage or the culture at the time. And it's called The Daily Study Bible by William Barclay, B-A-R-C-L-A-Y. And it was written some time ago, but it's really well done and highly accessible. And you would buy just one book of the Bible at a time, one book of the New Testament at a time. I would suggest starting with one of the Gospels, probably Mark or Luke, if pressed, I would probably say start with Luke. So I'm guessing you can get these now in digital form, but I've always owned them in paperback versions, and I kind of like that because I will often circle stuff and write notes in the margin. Now, that's really all there is for today. Look, the point of this podcast, I hope, was obvious. The Bible is a difficult book. It's not easy to read, nor is it particularly fun to navigate. But rather than saying, don't try, I'm trying to impress upon you that we truly live in the golden age of Bible study with the tools that are now available. Now, if you have something to add, maybe even a better website to recommend, then send me an email and let me know. As always, I would love to hear from you. My email address is dan at skypilot.zone. And on your spiritual journey, may you ask questions seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Thanks for joining us here today and being part of the SkyPilot Faith Quest community. This is a great place to ask questions you wouldn't feel comfortable or safe asking in other places. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions.